0: Welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies, Susan Thompson. Professor Thompson is one of the world's preeminent scholars of Rwanda. Her work focuses on state-society relations in Africa, and in particular, power relations between the state and individuals in post-conflict countries urban refugees, and internally displaced persons, Rwanda, Kenya, research ethics, and methodology. Professor Thompson's most recent book, Rwanda, From Genocide to Precarious Peace, was published by Yale University Press in 2018. Her previous work includes Whispering Truth to Power, Everyday Resistance to Reconciliation in Post-Genocide Rwanda, published by University of Wisconsin Press. And in 2013, she and Jude Morrison co-edited the book Emotional and Ethical Challenges for Field Research in Africa, the story behind the findings. Professor Thompson earned her Bachelor of Arts from St. Mary's University in Canada, a law degree from University College London, and her Master's and PhD from, and correct me if I mispronounce here we go. this here, Dalhousie University?
1: So close. Dalhousie.
0: Dalhousie University in Canada as well. Professor Thompson, welcome mm. to 13. Thank you, Dan. So prior to becoming a professor at Colgate in 2012, you actually started, I think, four months before I did.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm a um, newbie, yeah.
0: You worked for five years with the United Nations, and part of that time was spent as a lawyer investigating human rights abuses in two prefectures in Rwanda. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and how it influenced your career as a scholar?
1: Absolutely. So I was a young um, UN aspirant in high school. Uh, In Canada, we're sort of socialized to believe that we are peacekeepers and that the UN can do a lot of powerful works. I had certainly, you know, had a sip of the Kool-Aid and finished my master's degree at the University of British Columbia in 1992 in political science. I actually did a project on... Um, Australia, and Mary Robinson. So looking at colonial settlement in Australia through the politics of Mary Robinson. Mm -hmm. So Mary Robinson was the first director of the UN um, human rights organization. So I found myself in Kenya because I wanted to go to Somalia. So when I was finishing up my master's in 1992, Somalia was on fire. So I went to Somalia and everything blew up. You may remember, listeners will definitely remember Black Hawk Down. Yes. And, of course, 16 peacekeepers were killed. They were all Pakistanis. And then the young journalist Dan Eldon was killed. And I was like, well, I better get the heck out of here. So they evacuated us. And I actually opted out of U.N. support because I was like, I don't know if we should be in a convoy with U.N. vehicles. I actually went with CARE USA. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of my first exposure to Americans abroad. So I got to Kenya and the U.N. and it's, you know, Uh, what's the word? I can never say anything good about the UN, so let me just skip that. (laughs) Well, the UN is such a problematic institution, so because they didn't really understand the terrain, they'd given us these long contracts. Mm. So you would might think in a war zone like Somalia, okay, let's give them three-month contracts, let's give them six months. Oh, no, I had a four-year contract. And I'd had just, like, keep in mind, I had just finished my master's. I didn't know anything about anything, except I knew, like, ooh, peacekeeping is a normative ideal that I can get behind, There's no peace in peacekeeping. It's quite violent. So I got to Nairobi, and I had this very long contract. They're like, well, what are we going to do with all these people that now we are paying? So I took a job um, with UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, in Nairobi. And that got me to Madagascar because they had done all this outreach to understand how um, Africans manage the disaster aid. So Madagascar was a zone of cyclones. So I went down there. Finally came back to Nairobi, and they're like, you know what, why don't you go to Rwanda? Okay, I like to speak French. I'll go to Rwanda. It was literally no more complicated than that for me. I'd miss speaking French as a Canadian. So I went. Wait, what year was that? This is 94. So between 92 and 94, I'm just tooling around with the United Nations. And then finally I get to Rwanda. I'm like, ooh, this place is very strange. And it was strange because of the way the hierarchy worked in that society. So the UN had just inserted itself into the local structure. And I didn't have enough knowledge or the language to really understand. But I knew that I would be training to be a lawyer. I knew that um, what I saw on the ground didn't really mesh with what I'd understood through literature. So I had this, like, lived experience moment, for lack of a better phrase. I remember being just feet away from women who we were supposed to be helping. And the same that we, I had done in Madagascar, the same I'd done in Kenya, the same I'd done in Somalia. But in this case, you could see the lines on their face and, and the, the, the red hair. Your hair turns red when you're malnourished, whether you're Caucasian or black or whatever, whatever. So I asked, can I speak to them? And my official said, no, 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 we only speak to them through local government officials. And I was like, oh, that doesn't really accord with my Canadian sensibilities. But it probably took me 15 years to understand that there was a disconnect in sensibility there. Mm. And from that moment, sort of my research pivoted. So I, you know, worked as a lawyer for a long time. And then I was like, wow, this is just not where my soul is. I want to be doing social science research because the law is an imposition. It's passed. You then legislate. You then apply social science. How do these things affect you in your day-to-day life? So that, mm. that moment was pivotal. I just didn't realize it till probably '99, 2000, even later. Maybe I didn't start my PhD until 2004. Oh. Yes, I'm a late arrival. (laughs)
0: Um, So, you know, as we're going to be talking quite a bit about Rwanda here, and I I kind of want to set the stage um, going in and, and, you know, maybe you can give um, just a very broad overview of the nation of Rwanda, kind of like a CIA fact book uh, description, you know, where it's located on the continent of Africa, what's the geography like, its major cities and some cultural highlights.
1: Sure, so Rwanda is in Central Africa. So if you think of the Indian Ocean moving west, it's Kenya and Tanzania. Those are um, Indian Ocean countries. Immediately to the left, let's say, um, to the west is Rwanda. And it's bordered by Uganda to the north. It shares a wee border with Kenya if you include the big lakes. Uh, It definitely shares a land border with Tanzania. And it shares a land border to the west with Burundi. Mm Its western cousin and its most vexing neighbor is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So most Americans know DRC because it's just this huge CIA (laughs) problem, let's say. So that's how it's understood today. Rwanda is tiny. It's no bigger than the American state of New Jersey. Yeah, it's tiny. The Canadian province of New Brunswick for my Canadian listeners. (laughs) um it's so, and it's dense it's the most um densely populated country in Africa and third most d- densely populated in the world so it's something like i don't know the actual numbers but when i was writing my book it was like 560 people per square kilometer oh wow so i don't know what that is in numbers or miles i'm sorry but it's heavy it's also hilly, incredibly hilly. So it's known as the land of a thousand hills. Mm-hmm. And this tiny New Jersey-sized country really has six different uh, tropical zones. So you can grow tea in the north, you can have wheat in the south, you can have nothing in the in the southeast. So it's characterized by lush hills. Um, the volcano lava manages a lot of coffee, a lot of tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, It has a very big pyrethrum and flower um, export business, but those are its main industries. It doesn't manufacture anything, although the government is trying to change that. Um, Parts of it are arid. Parts of it are um, lush to the point of having 21 feet of topsoil. So you can just throw a seed and boom, (laughs) something grows. So you can see in April, April's the most gorgeous month for fauna and flora, even though it's the most terrific month culturally, because of course the genocide happened in um, April, but sunflowers. So imagine sunflowers growing to be like 9, 10, 12, 15 feet long in the matter of six weeks. It's just in just fields of sunflowers. It's gorgeous. Culturally, they share the same language. It's a predominantly Christian country uh, imposed by the Belgians, but imposed is, you know, a tricky word because many people took it up. Political elites took Christianity is a way to learn to speak French, to get educated, because the historical structure, Rwanda is actually a kingdom, and it has this monarchical roots, and the society is um, structured politically and culturally and religiously through a single leader who then governs through a very dense pyramidal structure of bureaucracy. So it's that dense structure combined with deep poverty managed by subsistence farming. So what I just described culturally and topography wise is how Rwanda works. People are poor, but they're fed and the government comes in and out of their life as necessary to manage them for different tasks and service of national development.
0: Okay. Um, And I feel like, you know, obviously we can't really discuss Rwanda without talking a bit about the ethnic or social groups there. Mm -hmm. So we have, and people have probably heard of these people before, but maybe don't know anything about them. So Hutu, Tutsi, and is it Tiwa? Twa. Twa. So can you talk a little bit about about those three groups?
1: Yeah, sure. So I purposely didn't mention them because I think talking about those ethnic groups actually pivots us to thinking about Rwanda in sort of essentialist ways. And by essentialist, I mean, we think of Tutsi as um, the victims and we think as um, Hutu as the perpetrator. And the fact that you can't pronounce twa because you've only seen it written on paper is emblematic of how... TOA function in that society. They're marginal hmm. by every account. They weren't technically caught up in the genocide because they weren't perpetrators or victims. But of course, they were involved because any, anyone in the country at the time, myself included, was affected by you know what was going on around them, whether or not they were directly targeted. So in my own work, I don't use ethnic okay. analyses. I use political analyses. So when I made reference in, in um, responding to your earlier question about the pyramidal structure, where are you situated in that structure? And that's one thing the research for my first book showed. Those who are lowest in the hierarchy, the subsistence farmers living in the field, very minimal education, almost no access to money or cars or anything that we would consider modern, quote-unquote, live day to day and sort of oblivious in many ways to ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity only becomes important in their lives when the state needs them to do something. Okay. So of course, I just published a piece actually um, in a news collection on settler genocide that I wrote when I was on leave last semester. Uh, everyday forms of violence, meaning just the soup of life, the way that we Interact with each other, how we talk to each other, how we divide and conquer each other, how we minoritize each other, how the state plays a role in setting up cultures of violence where it's okay to kill the other. So you get this distinction between Hutu as an underclass because they're not royal and Tutsi, even though they're equally poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most cases, the Tutsi who run the country are less than ten percent of the population, and ten percent of a minority population. So Tutsis are about fifteen percent of the population. So ten percent of that fifteen percent of the population govern the country. Is it like cased? cased? Is it like it's it so is? It is cased in many ways. I'm, you know, reluctant to use that word because it suggests a firm, sort of static system. There's lots of improvisation and movement between. And that's what my first book tried to show. You look at the political agency of these people who are technically, as you say, case. So they do exist in a hierarchy and you're often born into a, a, a caste okay. that doesn't allow you to move. And then ethnicity is layered onto it. So ethnicity, of course, is different than race, which is often hard to communicate to students and those who sort of watch or observe Africa as as armchair analysts, which, of course, like our current president, I would say, is an armchair analyst, the way he talks about Somalia and al-Shabaab, and uh, we can get into that later. Um, But in the Rwandan case, the hierarchy is based on your occupation as much, if not more, than it is on your ethnicity. And ethnicity becomes salient when the government decides, as they did in 1990. Hutu's guard against your Tutsi brothers mm. and that of course became acceptable within the the structure of society and the the discursive mechanisms of society say well Tutsi are different than us and my research showed and the research of many other scholars working on Rwandan Africa more broadly people will kill when put under pressure because it's a killer be killed situation but they do so with great hesitancy. So I spoke to people, yes, I killed him, but he asked me to kill him because he wanted to be buried on his ancestral land. Mm. So that emotional connection to land is something we forget in our commodification, like land is something to be produced, (laughs) something we live from or off. In the Rwandan psyche, and in these rural agrarian hierarchical societies, land is also where your ancestors are. It's where you understand local knowledge, sense of place, sense of belonging, land is used to barter um, agreements between families over weddings, for example, or uh, given to relatives to give them a space to grow their own land and move them into social adulthood. So the ways of knowing in Rwanda have been flattened by many scholars, because there's a just much more complicated cultural realm that isn't encapsulated by ethnicity. And of course, ethnicity leads us strictly to violence and Rwandan society, politics are shaped by more than just legacies of violence. And Of course it's there, but it's not something that matters in the day to day in the way that we as outsiders might imagine.
0: Hmm. So you've written that Rwanda was home to the most efficient genocide of the 20th century. By the time the Civil War and genocide ended in July of 1994, at least a half million ethnic Tutsi were dead in the fastest episode of mass political violence since the Holocaust. Can you talk a little bit about the events that led up to this and and what transpired? Sure. So broadly, um, the
1: 1994 genocide has its roots in pre-colonial conditions. So that hierarchy, that structures society, that is a pre-colonial factor. So the current government and some analysts, journalists in particular, P- Philip Gorovich, for example, is a famous proponent of this. And most Americans come to know Rwanda through Gorovich's work because he's a beautiful writer. But he's wrong about one thing. <laughs> and what he's wrong about is that pre-colonial conditions didn't shape mm. colonial conditions. So there's this idea that the Belgians arrived and then everything was upended. That's true to some extent, uh, except that Belgians interacted with the local elite. So there was lots of local agency and improvisation and sort of negotiating, going back and forth with the Belgians. That moment in 1932 jumps us to 1959 at the moment of um, decolonizations. The Belgians left after having educated and made politically aware um, through Catholic teaching, liberation teaching, actually, of their rights. So you have this tussle between Tutsi elites and a new um, Hutu counter-elite. The Tutsi actually wanted the Belgians to stay. Mm-hmm. The Tutsi elite did, because that would maintain the status quo. But what happened is the Belgians withdrew their support. By 1962, Rwanda was independent. Tutsi elites had fled into um, exile. Many into Congo, many into Uganda, but also United States, um, Canada, Belgium, all over parts of Europe and other parts of Africa. So that 1962 event actually in some ways sets the stage for what happens in 1994. So you have this Tutsi elite that fled. Their children, including the current president, Paul Kagame, gains political consciousness in exile, believes in Rwanda as a land of milk and honey, as they say decide to agitate to return. The current government, a Hutu government, um, the second republic is known as the Hiberimana Republic. Kaibanda's the first post-colonial president. He is actually um, disposed of in a coup just 10 years into his um, reign. I say reign because that gives a royal yeah. um, overture. Hiberimana's is like, Tutsi, you can do whatever you want. Just stick to the economic realm. Politics are for Hutu young Rwandans, young Tutsi Rwandans like Kagami are like, no, the only way to liberation for us to be able to return home is through politics. Hiberimana says in the late 1980s, you can't come home. There's no space. So remember what I just said about land. Mm-hmm. Kagami's like, but that's my ancestral home. I need to come back to where I belong. So they begin to organize in the mid 1980s into the uh, late 1980s. The Rwandan Patriotic Front. It's a Tutsi diaspora organization that eventually launches civil war from Uganda on October 1st, 1990. So that's sort of the first step. So the civil war precedes the genocide. The plan for genocide can't really emerge without a civil war. What you have then is a Tutsi rebel organization practicing guerrilla warfare that's simply not strong enough to overthrow the government. So by 1992, you have the French, the Americans, a little bit of the Germans, a little bit of the South Africans saying, let's do a peace accord. So these are the Arusha peace accords. They start in earnest in 1992. By 1994, it's impossible to see how Tutsi rebels and the Hutu government will ever come together and make a pact between elites. So don't forget that we're talking about elites. We're not talking about Rwandans. Hmm. So these two elite groups eventually cannot come to any sort of Agreement, Hiberi Mana, the president of the day, is returning from Arusha, Tanzania, where the peace accords are being negotiated. His aircraft is shot out of the sky. That is said to be the event that launches the Mm -hmm. genocide. So it's that spark. Mm -hmm. What happened, though, we know now, we didn't know at the time, because of street patrols and because of the heightened tension and security, this everyday violence that I mentioned a few minutes ago. People were already sort of primed in a, in a war posture, in a, in a posture of fear. So, and of course, there's a lot of economic insecurity, but also political insecurity. Street um, roadblocks are common. But as the moment the plane goes down, roadblocks are reestablished. Who is killed? It's not civilian Tutsis. It's actually Hutu moderates and Tutsi moderates who are agitating for a peace accord. So you have these two extreme groups fighting. Moderates are killed within the first week. Scholars now believe that the genocide, the plan for a genocide, didn't actually come into being until somewhere around April 12th, because the Haberiman is dead. He's perceived to be a moderate. The moderates around him have been killed Um, including seven Belgian peacekeepers who were responsible to safeguard the prime minister. The prime minister, a famous moderate. She wanted peace on both sides. She wanted a power-sharing government between Hutu and Tutsi. She's killed with seven Belgians. The loss of Belgian life means the internationals pull out. So you have this power vacuum. Hutu extremists grab control of the government. And by Hutu extremists, I mean those who wish to see Tutsi exterminated. Paul Kagame's government, I'm sorry, his rebel group, now government, um, take this opportunity to also begin to seize power. And that power is taken by territory. So the official narrative is that the RPF stopped the genocide. They did, but they also killed many along the way. So you have this situation where Tutsi victims and Hutu perpetrators just doesn't capture the extent, which is also why I don't like to use an ethnic um, frame because it does some intellectual work, but it doesn't really do any explanatory gotcha. work. So I can yeah. say Tutsi hated Hutu. Okay, but now what? Right. Doesn't mean you're going to activate that into some sort of death plan. Mm. So the death plan came through militarization, it came through a failed civil war, and it came through this sort of dramatic event of the plane going down. So to this day, we don't actually know who. Down the plane, that's one of the most befuddling aspects of Rwanda studies. So, you know, the preponderance of evidence is on the RPF, but there's just slightly less evidence that it may have been individuals within Highbury Monas faction.
0: Wow.
1: There's just no way to know. So it's poor social science to say, for sure, this site yeah. did it. Right. So, you know, even in my book, 2018, I say, I just, I still unknown forces. So I have a hunch, but I don't know. Hmm.
0: There's a haunting photo in your, in your new book um, that was taken in 2006 at the Morabi Genocide Museum. Mm. It shows dozens of exhumed bodies um, preserved with powdered lime as they appear in that memorial. And you write in the caption, Survivors of the genocide consider the display of the remains of their loved ones an offense to their memory and an affront to government-led reconciliation initiatives. Why did the museum decide on such a graphic display if there's, you know, I guess so much opposition to, to doing that?
1: I think um, I chose that caption for two reasons. Number one, the government doesn't actually give much concern to how survivors feel about things. All these displays are government-owned, okay. so the museums do not operate independent in the way we might imagine artists to be spaces of liberation or resistance or just you know social, cultural commentary as they are in the United States. Instead, they're managed through um, a government-run, sponsored, funded, appointed organization to manage Genocide Memorial. So the liming is to remind internationals. And it used to be in the early days, 94 till about 2000, 2002, depending on the location, that any international visitor was escorted to one of these museums. Mm. So Morambi only became limed actually around 2000. And in the background, and it's in the text, the government begins to clean up these sites and moves them away from how survivors remembered their loved ones dying, moving them to government, local offices, for example, Mm. putting them behind lock and key. So you can go see your relatives, but you have to get permission from the government. So it's really a method of showing foreigners who are the, obviously the main funders, foreign aid at, you know, right after the genocide, 90% of the operating budget today, Somewhere around 25% of Rwandans, Rwanda's budget comes from foreign aid, Americans, Canadians, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Brits, the Dutch, et cetera, et cetera. So those, those, it's a political act. And of course, museums, as we know, through Colgate's own um, new museum studies minor, they are political acts everywhere. Mm -hmm.
0: So you've written two books about Rwanda, um, and you've you know gone into detail um, you know about the events and the atrocities that have happened there and have indelibly marked that nation and its peace- people. You've also um, been critical of uh, President Paul Kagame. Uh, tell me a little bit about who he is, and uh, you know a, a little bit of background about Kagame.
1: Sure. So Kagame is of a royal lineage. He was born in Gitarama Town. That's smack dab in the center of Rwanda. And you know, fun fact, um, Wakanda in the movie. Was yeah. Bla- whatever Black that, Panther. Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. Wakanda is in the imaginary of that film, exactly where Rwanda is. So that was not lost on me when I saw it. I was like, oh, interesting. Easter egg. Yeah, and Gitarama <laughs> is literally almost in the smack dab middle of the African continent. So that's where Kagame is from. So Gitarama... Um, was his natal home. It's where the Tutsi monarchy first founded itself. It's where some of these Hutu counter-revolutionaries came to be because they put the Catholic teachings there under the Belgians. His family was amongst the first to flee in 1959 because, of course, they could see the writing on the wall. There had been pogroms against Tutsi monarchists for decades. He finds himself in southern Uganda, his father is of such stature that he's unable to sort of bring himself to do the low work of tilling and gardening and subsistence farming. So legend has it, there's no way for me to verify this, that his father died of a broken heart, with leading his mother to, of course, be like, okay, we're going to get these things going. So they go into school in Uganda. They gain political consciousness in Uganda. So, of course, events in Uganda have a huge impact on Kagame's development, his military development in particular is current Ugandan President Yari Museveni is in the bush in Tanzania. So the University of Dar es Salaam in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was this hotbed of like Marxist socialism. So they're all learning this like Marxist liberation, um, sociology, and, you know, it's the same sort of Marxist teaching we do in Court 152, actually, which I think is really interesting. So he joins Museveni in the bush. Museveni overthrows Idi Amin, And some listeners will know Idi Amin was horrific. He drove Indians out of the country. So Indians born in Uganda, Indians who helped build the economy were just expelled. Many of them ended up in the United States and Canada, actually. Idi Amin um, left, went to Saudi Arabia. Paul Kagame, amongst many other founders of the RPF, actually become central to um, Museveni's vision for Uganda. Museveni, of course, has been there since the 1980s, so that's a completely different conversation. But Kagame helps found the RPF in Uganda. He gets American support. He trained at Leavenworth in Kansas as a Ugandan official, but always with his mind on Rwanda. He used Uganda as a base to gain diaspora fundings. So they would have weddings and funerals. And I say that in air quotes, listeners can't see it. But they had these you know, funeral and wedding um, harambes like unity gifts and giving money to gain money for the vision hmm. to return militarily. So it was under the pretense of having a wedding ceremony give money for the mission, give money for the mission. So you had Tutsi from all over the world giving money for weddings and funerals um, in Uganda. Eventually, they he moves to Nairobi. He, at this point, actually meets his wife, who is uh, a prominent Tutsi royalist whose family had exiled to Burundi. So you have an interesting meld there because she's francophone and he's anglophone. And that's one of the big tensions in Rwanda where ethnicity also doesn't explain language. Mm. So where you exiled shapes your uh, cultural and language foundation. So Kagami's wife, uh, he marries her in 1989, so just before things go down, is Burundian. So they have their relationship in English. Less than six months after he's married, um, they invade. So he's always had this sort of military Sensibility, I say, and I say this in my book, rooted in his commitment to sort of Tutsi monarchs, protection of Tutsi. And I think this is where we have to tread really carefully with these um, liberating officials. They, they also have trauma in their lives. So hmm. they have loss. They have um, no sense of community. They struggle because they're not received in... Their new host communities, host communities want to expel them. So there's this, these xenophobic impulses are part and parcel of who Kagame is, and a lot of, and this is what I write about in my book. The, the policies and strategies they've deployed to contain this, what they consider a restive Hutu population, is just designed to secure to Tutsi population security. So the security of the Rwandan state for Kagame, I think, is deeply tied to his sense of persecution and loss as a child. Hmm. And I think it, you know, speaks to bigger themes with um, immigration and migration that we see in the world today. You know, the world is on the move, and this is not an exceptional circumstance. It's becoming more and more normal.
0: Hmm. In, In 2016, you wrote in The Conversation, quote, In Rwanda today, there are no checks and balances. There is no independent media in the country. Since he took power there has been never been a Rwandan court decision that did not end the way that Kagame wanted it to. Every vote in parliament has produced the result Kagame desired. There has never been a popular vote in which people did not concede to Kagame's will. Has that picture changed since 2016 or do things remain pretty much the same?
1: I think things are probably more tight. Hmm. Um, So you may recall, because we talked about this in another time, I co-wrote a paper with one of my students, Madeline Hopper, and I wrote a paper on electoral authoritarianism that came out just last May. Mm -hmm. And what we learned in the course of doing that research is everything you just described plus a lack of political opposition. So I've long argued that I have no problem with Paul Kagame being in power. Be in power for as long as you wish, but open it up to dialogue open it up to discussion let's have a broader base of voices around what Rwanda's future might look like and in 2017-2018 he closed all opportunity for that by imprisoning key political opponents both of whom are women actually which I think is pretty interesting because listeners may know Rwanda's sort of world famous for the percentage of women in parliament but the missing question is how much power do they actually have to act on behalf of their constituencies? So, since 2016, that quote, I think things are probably tighter, wow. which is interesting because it's if you're so beloved, why be so aggressive? Yeah, that's interesting. Same as in Syria. And then we saw okay. what happened in Syria. It's now civil war raging now for the last three years, Bashir, number two.
0: Hmm. So you know, given your uh, critical lens, I guess at times, um, and you know, you've appeared in the press many times, um, you know, talking about Rwanda. Um, do you still travel there? Can you still travel there? Do you worry about your safety in the country? So
1: I was asked to leave Rwanda in the nicest way possible. Let's say in 2007, I received a persona non grata notice. Um, what does um, that look like? What is it? Some dude just showed up at my door. I was making sp- my kids were obsessed with spaghetti. <laughs> I think spaghetti is just like not very tasty. That's like a family debate. So I'm there like trying to spice up this bloody sauce for like the 12th day in a row or whatever. And uh, knock on the door and it's a Rwanda. I was like, oh, hey. So I mean, we don't get visitors because like the Canadian culture is like, you call. <laughs> so there, if there's a random knock at the door, you're like, huh, oh, that's weird. So I opened it. It was the driver of the ambassador of the day, the Rwandan amb- ambassador to Canada. Madam, I'm sorry to tell you, I have a letter for you. It's like, okay, thanks. Closed the door, put the letter on the thing. Tried to feed my kids; they were much younger in those days. And opened it up. I was like, okay, I've been asked in air quotes to leave. Um, so I took it as an interesting sign because you know, I, I my research was stopped, which I write about in my first book. Mm-hmm. It was declared against national unity because I was giving equal weight mm-hmm. to Hutu and Tutsi voices. And my own research has really been like, okay, I need to talk to people about their lives in the context in which they find themselves. So I spent all this time learning the language, spent all this time living in very rural areas, living as they live, no hot water, no electricity, et cetera, et etc., And the Rwandans always sort of dismissed me, like, why is this crazy white chick living? Like, she doesn't have to live there. She could live in the Hilton. We don't mind. Does she have no money? Like, the way they talked about me, how local officials and, like, higher-ups talked about me was as revealing as what I was sort of seeing in the countryside. So when my work was stopped, Rwandans came out of the woodwork to say, oh, my God, they treated you like they treat us. And I was like, oh, great. Um, Super. (laughs) And... I thought about it for a wee bit and I was like, okay, so I actually have to keep writing because they've now given me sort of this free pass. I don't have to self-censor because I there's no way for them. So when I got asked to leave the country, my first thing was, okay, how do I protect the people who consulted me? But because the government became very, you know, quickly apparent within two to three weeks, the government paid such disregard to the work that I was doing because it concerned peasants. You know, people I would call subsistence farmers, they're not peasants in the strict sense of the, you know, Russian meaning of the word, for example. Um, they actually didn't know who I was with or what I was doing. So oh, I was that's like, good. You guys are... <laughs> yes, and of course, it's a reminder when I say this to my students, like, we have these ideas being raised as Americans or Canadians that like authoritarian systems are these hermeneutically sealed boxes. There's actually lots of like human error. You're my friend and I like you and I can bargain. So this, you know, improvisation that I've used a few times, like that's a very purposeful word choice because humans always find a way to like get around. So, you know, so I entered the United States through Smith College So I came with my PNG letter to the United States. We moved to the States in 2010. And the Rwandan ambassador in D.C. used to come up to whatever I'd organized amongst the five colleges. And he was always so funny. He's like, did you see that I bought a Hugo Boss um, belt? And I'm like, huh, my brother has one of those. And he's like, so you know about Hugo Boss? Yeah, I mean, I live in society. I know about Hugo Boss. So we eventually had this, like, Very strange back and forth. You know, fast forward five years, someone in his network, not him, but someone in his network was like, Hey, I'm having trouble. Can you write me an asylum affidavit? So, this weird sort of adjacency that I have to Rwandan higher echelons because of my work with the lower echelons, and then my sort of belief in and commitment to long term relationships like, even if you hurt me, we're still in a long term relationship. Um, has resulted in me actually doing some advocacy work for those who are now fleeing the government. I'm like, okay, this is quite a plot twist, but a very interesting one. Oh,
0: that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I guess, the, and this is something you kind of mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, you've done um, some recent research uh, with some students here um, looking at the government in Rwanda and, and how they paint this rosy picture of mm. the nation. Um, but you've argued that the nation's growth and prosperity is really centered in the cities and that those in rural areas are left out. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the disparity and why that's the case?
1: Yeah, I think it's actually pretty basic. I used to think it was a more complicated tale, and then I came in the course of writing my last book. The government has framed Kigali, which is really the only city in Rwanda. There are towns, but there's really only one city. And Kigali is for the elite. Whether you're Tutsi elite or Hutu elite, it doesn't matter. If you're loyal to the ruling party, Kigali is for you. And they make all sorts of moves. They sweep homeless people up. They make... Um, forages against prostitution like anything that's amoral or unclean is swept aside in the rural areas people live pretty much as they did 100 years ago 200 years ago it's a barter economy except for government co-ops where they can sell coffee or tea or cucumbers or whatever it is they grow Um, the rwandan climate is such that they can subsist it's a low protein diet though so they rely on vegetables and beans uh, very little animal protein, so people don't have incredible life expectancies um, in rural Rwanda as you know. 100 years ago, the average schooling level is just third grade, mm. so they can you know understand basic um, things. So, and of course, when we think about education as a benchmark of intelligence, we miss a lot. So, the government has also overlooked their knowledge of the land, their knowledge of. Um, climate cycles, um, when to plant, when to fertilize, Mm -hmm. when to weed, when to harvest. And many of the reconciliation um, initiatives that I documented, people were like, I can't show up, even though I know it's the law and you're going to find me because I will lose my harvest. And the government didn't appreciate this. So in terms of like the rural urban divide, it's vast. Um, Kigali is definitely an impressive location but the question for people who go is like okay at what expense and of course at whose expense and it's at whose expense that is really asked so when you say you're critical I'm like am I critical or am I just asking a different question so I'm not I don't intend to criticize I actually have great admiration for what the RPF has done Um, But I worry that it's not sustainable.
0: Skepticism maybe is a better word. Yeah. Am I
1: a skeptic? Probably.
0: That sounds fair. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, on New Year's Eve. Here we go. President Kagame wrote on Twitter, Mm -hmm. We are ready to fight to sustain the gains we have attained. I wish Rwandans and friends of Rwanda even more good luck. Those who want to destabilize us will continue to lose. It seems like an oddly confrontational way to ring in the new year. Um, Who is he talking about? Trying to destabilize the country, and why did he address them so publicly?
1: Let me LOL in Twitter feeds. I've actually been blocked by President Kagame, so I didn't.
0: Did someone send you this?
1: No. Yes, the first time hearing of it. Um, I've tried not to worry about it too much. I might not worry about it at all when we're talking about. Kagame has, act. That's to me sounds completely reasonable. That's who he is. Huh. He's a warmonger. He will fight to the death for what he believes in. Uh, he's definitely armed and ready to go. He still maintains, I think, the loyalty of most of the rank and file, m- mostly for economic reasons, perhaps not ideological reasons. But starting in 2016, key founding members of the RPF, exiled themselves they went into self-imposed exiles They're like we don't like how you're running the country and they framed it as look at us being moral trying to stop Kiga- Kagami. i saw it as they were just annoyed they didn't get their piece of the pie no. so there was really like a corruption story there somewhere and Kagami had to be pretty careful because he couldn't come out too hard on these guys because they know secrets no. and of course they've told them but no one believes them but uh, many of those who went into exile, there is a fear, and I think this is what Kagami's getting to, that they are amassing somewhere outside of the country oh, to yeah. re-enter in the way that Kagami did. And this is, you know, so he is a fighter. Uh, he knows how to fight. He's condescending and dismissive to some. He's charismatic and states like to others. So depending on how you view war, <laughs> um, you could see that as a positive statement or a negative statement. I see it as a statement of weakness. If the country were as stable as he believes, he wouldn't have to worry about it. I honestly, I haven't watched that much since I published my book, but I don't see any outside sources. They're not funded. Two of them have been assassinated by Kagami's forces themselves, of the four who exiled Two of them are in the United States, actually. And have sort of mediocre political parties. So there's th- even the opposition is deeply divided. So the RPF had one thing. The Tutsi diaspora was behind them. The current elites. I just don't see a, them coming together. Hmm. But that is, you know, some weird mixture of Rwandan strength
0: and humility. Very out of the blue, just reading through the feed, it, and it came as yes. Yeah, so if you find
1: an anything interesting, interesting moment, send it along because I, be cause I uh, can't access them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also uh, blocked by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, so I, like, I miss really? big, but I, yeah, I don't consider myself a scholar of Rwanda anymore. My my methodology relies on talking to people, so I, and I can talk to political elites, but it's not my true interest. I'm really interested in how does someone in the countryside pull themselves together after conflict. Yep.
0: Uh, In 2018, the Rwandan government paid 30 million pounds to sponsor the Premier League soccer team Arsenal Mm -hmm. in an effort to increase tourism. What do the citizens think about this kind of outreach and is tourism vital to the future of Rwanda?
1: That's a good question. I think tourism is because it's one of their key ways of earning foreign export and they have invested a lot of money in ensuring a sort of high quality tourist infrastructure. um, But it's also curated in the way those museums are curated. So you can go to the Akagera Park, or you can go to the Yungwe Forest, and you can spend some time in Kigali. But like actually seeing where people live, and how they manage their food supply, or (laughs) looking at a uh, rural schoolyard or whatever, that's not part of it. But Rwanda does actually have pretty decent receipts. Um, Has the Arsenal deal produced more tourists? It's I honestly don't know, but um, I, when I wrote that article, I assume you're referring to my Africa as a country op-ed that I did. Arsenal is Paul Kagame's favorite team. <laughs> That's what I thought was the most interesting right, thing. Right. It's like, is that not a form of corruption when you make a decision on behalf of the government? So when you ask what do Rwandans think, I doubt most of them know about it. Oh, really? Yeah, because they like it wouldn't be announced on local radio or whatever. And they you know, BBC's blocked. Is it unblocked? Blocked oh. at the moment. I don't know. So it's hard for them to get international okay. news. And in the, you know, in any sort of authoritarian system, what is delivered to the local people is carefully curated. It's even the Arsenal deal. I'm sure people know about it, but not the majority of
0: people. Um, you co audited a book titled "Emotional and Ethical Challenges for Field Research in Africa: The Story Behind the Findings." I'm curious what, if anything, like uh, what has been the emotional toll for you as a result of your research um, in that country? Is it something that has, you know, weighed heavily on you or is it um, just more of a, you know, seen as, you know, going through the academic motions?
1: Yeah. Ugh, that's a hard question actually. So I I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, which I was like, how? Like, what are you talking about? And I was in... Nova Scotia, where I grew up at that time. So that's when I decided to leave the legal field. So I had this really profound moment. I was in Nairobi, Kenya, and I ha- and I was um, working at the UN. I was doing a consultancy, and I had this habit. I would leave for work, stop at this, like, French bakery, get a croissant, get my cappuccino, and, like, go to the office. And this is probably 2004, 2005. Someone had been, like, fatally injured, and their, the body is laying in front of my coffee shop so the coffee shops closed but I stepped over and I was like can I have and they were like we're closed and I was like oh and I looked and I was like of course of course I'm so sorry and I like I had to check myself at that moment Like, okay maybe things aren't let me just I went straight home to Nova Scotia packed up my family and we went and I got myself into therapy and therapy was hard because they're like oh my god you went to Africa no man (laughs) and And then I eventually found, and this is sort of maybe an interesting question because it brings me full circle to peacekeeping, um, military therapists who were preparing and debriefing Canadians to go do peacekeeping in Bosnia were like, yeah, we'll take you. And I began this process of therapy. I'm like, okay, I'm actually quite messed up. And for a while I had this like I'm weak, and what's wrong with me? And then eventually through therapy, I was like, okay, so the the feelings I'm having are actually a product of seeing and documenting extreme human suffering. And then I went through this period where, like, well, I can't really talk about it because, like, I'm not Rwandan; and it didn't happen to me. I just, like, just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it became a joke amongst my friends, like, don't go where Thompson's going. Something bad's going to happen, and you're not going to. I'm like, okay, you guys, just relax. Um, (laughs) Genocide jokes are the best, come on. Um, And then from there, I was like, okay, so how does this experience become academic knowledge? So how does it shape my method, the people I wish to consult, um, the entitlement that maybe I feel to go and consult them? Um, And from there, that story behind the findings, as I started to move into that writing, it became clear that many other scholars, African-born and foreign-born, were like, yeah, we really don't know what to do with the weight of what's in our head because it's not valued in the academy. So that book actually took four years to get published because mm-hmm. so many publishers were like, yeah, it's interesting, but like, so what? So it took quite a while to get into the academic record, this you know, researcher trauma and considerations of like how our history and who we are And our various subject positions and our positionality within systems of knowledge shape the questions we ask about a place that isn't our own. So I actually have a new book in peer review right now that's a follow-up. So it should be... Teaser. Yeah, and that one I worked with on Ansem's and every other contributor to the volume is African-born Working in African locations. I hope that book will be out by like the end of 2020. Ooh, yeah. So, exciting. yeah, it is. It's that one also has taken like four years to make because we work with. Um, they come from their mother tongue, then they move into French because that's how they were educated, and then we do the work to move it into sort of mm-hmm. like academic English. Yeah.
0: We're at question 13. Here we go. So I want to talk a little bit about your work uh, at Colgate as a professor, and mm. um, you've you've taught a class titled Feminist Methodologies, and I, I'm curious as to what is a feminist method of carrying out research, and how does that differ from what someone may see as a more traditional approach to research?
1: Oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, I also one of my campus roles is I direct the Women's Studies Center, and the academic program, obviously. So I am obligated, and happily do so obligated is the wrong word, um, to give one of my teaching courses to women's studies. So I choose to teach feminist methodologies. It's one of my favorite courses. And I teach it actually as feminism, but also decolonial. And what you call traditional, I understand those to be positivist ways of knowing. So positivism is you see a thing, and because you see that thing, you can name it, and then you can analyze it. Or as a feminist methodology, tries to flatten the relationship between researcher and research. So the researcher recognizes herself as an instrument of knowledge. So not a person who's like seeing a thing and naming it and thus creating knowledge by like naming that thing and putting it in conversation with other things. Um, So you could think about like nuclear weapons and war. I'm talking about nuclear weapons and I'm relating them to war in this way. So you see two things and then you use that knowability to give some traditional knowledge. Feminist methodologies are more rooted in conversation, more rooted in community, less rooted in the hierarchy between researcher and research so there's a a critical self-reflexivity so you must understand yourself so it's not really work that everyone can do because if you're not prepared to self-reflect so you know the work I did in 2006 before I started my PhD like was I critically self-reflective no could I have anticipated the ways in which Rwandans would take to my work because I was asked quote-unquote to leave the country no. So it's very difficult to teach these things to students because they sort of lack that critical stance on themselves. So in that course, we teach them how to think about critical reflection, positionality, so position vis-a-vis particular structures. So a, a traditional way of knowing would take those structures as sort of a given and obvious, whereas a feminist approach would be like, okay, so how did we get these structures and who do they benefit? So it's, it's you know, quite a obvious distinction, but hard to enact. So I teach it as a a process, not as an outcome. So you're always in the process of knowing something different. Very
0: cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. That was 13. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts or ideas. And let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. Have a wonderful week, and as always, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Ketrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.